HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Thanks for listening. Do you know what's going to happen next year in 2018? Stay tuned. Find out. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 150 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and this is Tech Bites, the weekly show where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. And this is a very special show. Today is December 14th, 2018, if you're listening in the future, and it is the last show of the year. Woohoo! Very exciting. It's episode number 122. 
2017 was very auspicious because we did hit the 100 episode mark, which seemed so far away when we started in January 2015. So as we always do for the last episode of the year, we take a look at the year to come. And in order to help us forecast 2018, we have with us today Mitchell Davis, who I'm very happy to have in the studio for a variety of reasons. One, he is a Heritage Radio Network host. Was. Or do you ever... Do they, do they ever go away? Maybe they I don't always go am away because in perpetuity. It's, it's online forever. Yes. So far. You can find him at heritageradionetwork.org. The they name always of his come show. back. <laughs> Part of the... Um, how many episodes do we have archived now, David? Over 10,000. Over 10,000 episodes. Yep. Taste Matters. Taste, yeah. No, I don't have 10,000 Taste Matters episodes, but a couple of hundred was yeah. a good run, and I, I miss it. Coming out here today, I just, it just, it's just such a great place to be here at Roberta's in the Heritage Radio Shipping cube. Container Shipping Studio. Shipping Container, yeah. Yeah. So you can also find him on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, where all of the other podcasts live forever, at least for now. I noted that they're doing, the FCC is having their net neutrality vote this morning, right now, as we speak. And so we don't know what's going to happen coming out after that, which is, it's a crazy time we live in. Thinking, as I was coming here about that vote, I was listening this morning uh, to some other shows commentating about it. I, I realized, as much as I don't want it to happen, knowing the technology space someone's probably already written the code to get around it in some way or That's the app. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. <laughs> right. how, to, how to jerry-rig your yeah. providers. I'm sure there will be a patch you download for something. Or also, um, what was the name of the, one of the original internet providers back in, you know, the AOL days? Uh, um, that was... That Mindspace or... Uh, was, it was kind of like the green environmental. It had more security for the... I don't remember I emails, but it. We were just was reminiscing in our office about the dial-up days, where we ha- literally <laughs> had in a phone jack a five-cord uh, splitter for our computers in our office, and everyone used to have to say, "I'm going online," because only one could go on at a time. <laughs> <laughs> well, to your point, somebody's probably writing the code to get around it, and there is probably already some sort of maybe crowdsourcing public service utility internet provider that's going to get ready to pop up and 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 be a neutral yep. provider. Still a shame, but... I, I and if you're out there and you're a tech entrepreneur and you're looking for your next project, maybe that's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we have Mitchell here. He is a friend and family for Heritage Radio Network. He is also the executive vice president of the James Beard Foundation and has been with them for almost 25 years, which is amazing. Crazy. I mean, just... I was six when I started. Of course. (laughs) You were in the the, uh, after-school program? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Where you learned how to bake cookies? (laughs) Uh, Although I probably was baking cookies when I was six. It was considerably more than 25 years ago, sadly. So the cookie baking leads us into, also in 2017, Epicurious named Mitchell one of the 100 greatest home cooks of all time, which was, an Im- yes, <laughs> yes, alongside people like Julia Child and 
Yeah. Well, what's Dory funny Greenspan about that is you've probably had dinner at my home more than almost anybody. And you are probably one well, of the hundred best home cooks of all time. You're at least in the, you're in the top five home cooks <laughs> of people that I know. Well, that's very sweet. Um, and considering how I know you eat at home, <laughs> that is saying a lot. <laughs> you're one of the only places we go to eat outside of our home, though. We cherish that position. He also is an award-winning cookbook author, a PhD in food studies, and in 2015, his first appearance on Tech Bites, episode 45, American Food 2.0, he came on in his capacity as the head of the USA Pavilion at the World's Fair, Expo Milan, which is really, you know, having known Mitchell for so many years, you know, it, it seemed the ramp up to the expo, the experience itself, and then the aftermath really brought you from a national environment into really something truly international that went beyond sort of the typical dining trends that we talk about, but really into, you mm. know, food policy and what's happening in the world. That's sort of that really academic, fundamental, actual food life mm. that we talk about. Well, it's interesting you say that because one of the the things, even though so few people knew Expo happened in America for all sorts of reasons that this show is not about, um, what it what it did for me was to see how global uh, the food community is, whether you're talking about sustainable development or agriculture or technology or, or just the gastronomy, the cooking the, the, and, and technology. We have talked about this, I think, uh, certainly you have talked about it on previous shows and we talked about it in that one show that the connectivity that technology allows for chefs and farmers and eaters and media in the world has changed food. And typical, I think, to the United States, we kind of look down or, I mean, our heads are down and that we are, we're focused on what we're doing, where we are, and aren't always aware of the global um, picture, let's say. And that experience opened my eyes to the value for American chefs and farmers and producers and and NGO operators, et cetera, um, to participate in the global space more because there's so much dynamism and so much community um, outside the U.S. too. It also presents an interesting frame, I think. One of the, anecdotally, one of the most interesting stories that you told about that time there, your time in Milan was a story about orchestrating an international dinner with international chefs and international guests and one of the themes that the American contingent put forward was talking about food waste and using all the ingredients and using food waste and all that, which is definitely a very, very strong um, movement here yeah. in the U.S. And the European reaction was, we well, already do that. That's what we do. That's we what do that. cooking is. That's is not a thing. Using everything. We've been doing that forever. But ev right. <laughs> but even that experience, I mean, we sometimes take for granted, and I, I'm about to sound like a conspiracy theorist, and in some ways I am, but I don't think it's conspiracy. I just think it's the way that sort of influence and power moves and flows. But that the food waste conversation that we are also wrapped up in, and the Beard Foundation in particular, and even tech startups that are dealing with technological approaches to food waste and rest restaurant monitoring and compost, etc., began at a, uh, my understanding is began at a meeting of 100 people at Davos 12 years ago where they made it, a com the global community made it a commitment to try to do something about it. And it's taken a, a dozen years for it to trickle down to the point that I'm sure this restaurant we're sitting in, you know, has thought about what they, their waste stream in a way that no chef, certainly from your husband's time of cooking in France, uh, ever considered with such intention, of course, 
traditional cooking is always about using everything, maximizing flavor and minimizing waste. But um, to be intentional about it in that way and with an environmental spin, I think you can sort of trace these trends as they move throughout the world. And uh, I just think it helps all of us. And certainly through podcasts like this, you mentioned 150 countries. Yes. The Isn't power that of that is incredible. You know, if one person in each of those countries listened to you, that's that's the way you change the world. So I think we sometimes poo-poo the, the cell phones and Instagram and everything that we do. And yet look at look at that. That's amazing. It is amazing. And every time I hear those numbers, um, it's really breathtaking. And it's very different experience that you have from being inside the shipping container in Roberta's. Yes. Um, people who follow social media or who've been to the websites, you know, you see pictures of the studio. It's a tiny little, very cozy, funky space. Roberta's doesn't open until 11 a.m. So right now the dining room is quiet and you have a very solitary feeling when you're talking to your guest. <laughs> and to think that people in 150 countries are listening uh, is, is kind of amazing. But I think I actually think that uh, to, to sort of piggyback on that, that that the intimacy with which we are communicating right now and which people 100 countries away from us will be listening I think is the power of this moment, right? It isn't the sense, you don't imagine a hundred, a crowds, millions of people gathered around in 150 countries. It's this one-on-one -on -one connection. It's the person in um, Bratislava, you know, turning on their, their, uh, their podcast, listening to you while they make dinner. Like that's the power, that's the intimacy of technology now. And I think it's very different um, in the way that we relate to each other and also the way we relate sort of to the, to the world in a bigger way. I mean, I also think it's unfortunately responsible for the fact that we are now a country building walls and trying to keep the world out because the reaction to that intimacy and that breadth, I think, is to just dig your heels in and put up a fence. And in some ways, we're living the unfortunate reality of that. One of the other interesting things about the podcasting technology in particular is that while it does allow this amazing accessibility and portability and broadcast range, it's a very analog experience to me. One of the things that drew me to the podcast initially was the fact that we don't really talk to people ver in a verbal, vocalizing, out loud kind of way. So much of our communication with people, even if it's one-on-one, -on -one, even if it's perceived as being like private and intimate, is via text, email, emoji, Instagram, all these digital things. And it's to be able to hear the sound of someone's voice and their pentameter and the laughter and the breathing and all those kinds of things is so intimate. I'll, I'll confess something that I probably shouldn't say as I'm talking on a podcast, but I've only started listening to podcasts as podcasts, not pretending they're radio is what I mean, in the last few months. And I'm late to it for a bunch of reasons. And one of the funniest things is that the thing that changed it was my new AirPods, which somehow <laughs> I didn't realize how hampered by a cord I was, but somehow the, 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 the facility with which you can just plug those things in your ears and they start right away and the battery's always working for some reason has made me listen to podcasts. But one of, the, one of my hesitancies or why I'm so late to it is because I constantly listen to the radio, NPR usually. While but you're Heritage, cooking, those while amazing cooking, breakfast, home cooking anything, dishes yeah. at home. Um, but for me, it's a connection to the outside world. And so even though I know radio has now been recorded and it starts to repeat, the outside world starts to repeat at a certain time in the morning and whatever, for me, it was always like a, 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 um, 
it was connection to outside, and podcasts seem so inside and so not. It was, per, it was perceived as being real time. Yeah, you were having right. some sort of real to, time, like watching CNN when a when a crisis unfolds or something. You were sort of like connecting. So it's just been the shift in the last few months that I've been like, okay, now I'll admit that yeah, all the radio is pre-recorded anyway, and you can listen anytime. And I we've admitted that for television more easily in my household anyway. So it's just funny to me now. And now I've sort of wrap up in the podcast and listen and and um and participate in in that world a little bit more and don't pretend that I'm listening to the radio anymore. That's very funny. Although there are probably generations of people out there who don't really know what listening to the radio means. Of course not. And there is <laughs> you know, of course not. And I you know, yeah, well, whatever. Yeah. It's diff times change. It's funny cuz I'm only 31 and how much <laughs> the time has changed <laughs> in that short time. So, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk with Mitchell Davis about forecasting 2018. On the break, you're going to hear from our amazing sponsors. Did you know that Heritage Radio is a 501c3 nonprofit? We are kind of like public radio, and that means that we rely entirely on our members and sponsors in order to make radio and broadcast it to 150 countries. So take a listen, see who's supporting us, and maybe when we come back, you'll think about joining that bandwagon and supporting us too. Stay with us. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients, food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature, food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. What do you think the most important food tech trends are right now? What's your favorite app? What's the piece of technology you can't live without? We'd really love to know. Get in touch with us. We are very interactive. You can follow us on social media at TechBytes, H-R-N, T-E-C-H-B-I-T-E-S-H-R-N. You can email us, techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. We're all over the place. We'd love to hear from you. And today, we are hearing from our in-studio guest, Mitchell Davis, to talk about forecasting for 2018. He has a very interesting point of view as the executive vice president of the James Beard Foundation, 
the head of the USA Pavilion for Expo Milan in 2015. He has a chair on the Academy of the World's 50 Best Restaurants. He's one of the hundreds greatest home cooks <laughs> of all time. He's a PhD and an award-winning cookbook author. So let's circle back because we got we get went right into mm. great conversation at the beginning of the show. And typically at the top of the show, we talk about apps, favorite apps, ones we love, new ones we've just discovered. 2017 iTunes named the number one app of the year as Calm, which is a meditation app, right. followed closely on the heels by Headspace. So what was your favorite app for 2017? And what do you think the app trends are going to be for 2018? Hmm. Well, my favorite app is actually an upgrade I, the, uh, of an app. Um, I am an avid user of Dropbox and the built-in scan feature of Dropbox <laughs> now that allows me to wave my phone over a receipt or whatever and make a document of it has feels like every restaurant I go to, the last thing I do is kind of in the cab home scan my receipt and it goes where it's supposed to go. It's, it's amazing to me. Uh, and so that I, I actually don't have a new app, but but there something's happened in technology this year. I feel like, and maybe it's because of the integration of your home and Alexa and or Google telling you to turn the lights on or whatever it is that that they've gone even more native in some ways. They do stuff, and it's not stuff that annoys you anymore. It's stuff that you, when you realize it's happening, it kind of freaks you out because they've anticipated what you want to do and so so well so it's scary and also wonderful i don't know if that's making any sense but you know somehow it's like that's really creepy it does that oh yeah. my god now i don't have oh, to do I don't that ever have to do, exactly. <laughs> exactly i'm a little uncomfortable with this but yes. it's going to save me some time so i'm going to be okay with it you know it. like when you look at google maps now and it has your next appointment on the map or it tells you you know where you're going to dinner or when your plane is arriving and you didn't tell it <laughs> you didn't like yes. all of that and stuff and it's just populated right. your calendar it's with totally all these things cool i mean it'll drive your car i presume it'll do all sorts of things and all you did was open the the app I mean, it's a funny time. What do you think is coming in 2018? Well, I think there are going to be more apps like Calm that... Um, that Counterbalance the Push insanity. you to analog, yes, yeah. that, that are intended to remind you to look up or to, you know, like your iPhone tells you to breathe every once in a while or stand. <laughs> it's hysterical to me that to sort of take you away from the rabbit hole of the internet and those talking to those people 150 countries away uh, and bring you back into the present. So I'm not sure what the equivalent of food is for the food one will be for that. But, but even, you know, it's funny to me that we think because of the nature, the, the way we've changed the startup mentality, we think of companies like Blue Apron as, as a tech company in some way, or it has a mentality of a tech startup. And I know they have VC money or maybe not anymore now that they're, they're losing all their money and their market share. But we think of the, the meal kit phenomenon as a tech phenomenon but it's actually very analog you still you get something in a box and you have to cook it and it's got peels and and stuff like that and so it's funny to me that that somehow we've left the we've left the digitalization of things so to speak and come back to the the sort of connection of the world i guess it's more like the internet of things the the physical things that we're just using it as an think, conduit for i think they get categorized as tech companies because you access them via an app right. or technology. So anything where your portal is technology is sort of considered tech because you need to have designers and app tech right. and all of that kind of stuff yeah. as, as the gateway to... And it's how you interact, and right. It's, and, and all those things. But I can imagine the, 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 the most impressive thing about a company that grows food 
finds recipes, ships it to you. It has nothing to do with the app. It has to do with the, the logistics in, you know, around the country. So it's interesting. I would say that my guess would be um, going into 2018, probably in the food space specifically in terms of app tech. I'm going to say that we're going to see a lot more of augmented reality and virtual reality around food. Mm. Um, Where you hold it over and it tells you the calories or stuff or like that. Or you, it will let you see what things look like on a menu, or you know, you could you know be looking at a menu in a restaurant or something like that and see some image of it or some sort of experience, a virtual experience with a product from your phone or your desk. This is outside the realm of apps, but I, I've heard two designers describe to me what I think could be really valuable for the fraught business model of the restaurant, and that is to create environments technologically that are satisfying because of screens or walls or projections or whatever it is in spaces that, that aren't otherwise visually uh, suitable for a restaurant or a fine restaurant. And, and I'm thinking there's, there is, um, I'm going to forget the name right now, but in, in Shanghai, there is a famous restaurant called um, something that you can't get into. And it's, there's a video screen. Is it the one that moves? Yeah, it's, it's sort of nuts. But, but considering how expensive real estate is and how the restaurant model doesn't really work and no one can afford whatever, I think you're, we're going to have to find ways to get people to go to restaurants that are in the basement, like they are in Japan or on the seventh floor where you don't want to be in an interior or whatever. But if you can find a way to create an environment technologically that, that is satisfying, even in those places, I think there's a real value to something there. Uh, maybe it'll just be too trendy, but uh, you can imagine it being transporting. So probably, yes, more augmented reality, more virtual reality. And on just on the app front, um, perhaps enhancing or changing uh, the gestures that we use to oh. navigate the phone, to navigate oh. things, to navigate, you know. That scares me. Well, we'll see. Because we, I've just learned these ones. <laughs> well, maybe there'll be more. Maybe you could just wave your hand and turn the page for a, a recipe, so for here's example, <laughs> without, getting your, without having to touch the device with we, your right. cookie oh, dough yeah. fingers. Interesting. Well, and no one's really satisfactorily um, solved the glove problem. I, none of, you know, you, we are wearing gloves. It's 20 degrees outside. You yes. know, it's 20 degrees inside today here. Yes. And, uh, and I still can't read my phone without freezing my fingers off. You can get that one. I know. Just isn't <laughs> The one th finger. They're not nice enough gloves or something. I don't know. <laughs> so app technology is going to continue. And then I would guess also that maybe it's going to go to things that are more simple. Maybe go to more single function, a little more simplistic. Um, mm -hmm. My favorite app, which I talk, I've talked about many a time, which is the first app that I talked about on this show, is is the L Train fucked, and it's just a, <laughs> it's just the L Train logo, the gray circle with the L in it, and you open it up, and it pulls the MTA API, and all all it tells you is, is the L Train fucked, and, I, and it either says yep or nope, <laughs> and that's all it does. I love it sort of simplicity at yes. its best. And, and functionality. I mean, why it's pretend? It's beautifully designed. Yeah. It's very simple. In terms of just the <laughs> larger food tech trends that we're going to see in 2018, I, I think I can make a, a big argument for blockchain in the food supply. Blockchain seems to be a very trendy word that I'm, I'm seeing a lot online. I'm seeing it... <coughs> subjects at conferences, not necessarily food conferences, but I think when a company like IBM decides to wade into the pool and say, blockchain, it's going to 
fix mm. foodborne illness problems in the world. That's a pretty big yeah. Let's hope statement. Well, and and this idea, <coughs> excuse me, that's interesting. Um, the, the AI influence, you know, which requires so much data, um, is, is complicated when the data points in the like in the food world are ten billion carrots or something, right? It's not. It doesn't add up in some way, and so it's an interesting thing to think about what big data will do to my daily routine besides sell me something else on Google or something, you know, but like to cooking or something. And I think in some ways that's what that conversation is about. I think, yeah. Well, blockchain is about, in the instance that I'm describing it, they're talking about a very specific tracking of, you know, basically farm to table. Right. So that you can then but every see, object, but, right, yes. like right, and so the foodborne illness, I, they get down to the the DNA level uh, of of the microbes in an environment. I know IBM's been working. When we were working with Expo. They showed us this thing where they they have monitors and sensors to know the DNA of the microbes growing in that space, so that when something's out of sync, they know there might be a foodborne illness issue. So that's a tremendous amount of data, more data than you could ever imagine in in one 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 at one time. Uh, and the idea is to look for the anomalies that could indicate something's wrong in the monitoring of everything, which is the monitoring of everything. Yes. You know, I, we are working with this guy to this, uh, at the MIT media lab, uh, Caleb Harper, who's got this open ag lab and he builds these food computers. And what they are is they monitor every aspect, monitor and can manipulate every aspect of the environment, the growing environment of a plant. And they've just built the so so that right down to the microbial level because of course soil and nutrient absorption has to do with microbes and so they can ex, they can get a plant to express the flavors associated with terroir by changing the humidity the sunlight um, the temperature the soil activity um, with a computer so that they can they can simulate any environment in the world for the growth of a plant. They can also change how much it produces or all that sort of stuff without touching the genetics, nothing, just the environment. It's amazing. They've just built the biggest one the size of a hazelnut tree for Ferrero Rocher. And so it's big and it's got a million sensors and it's, you know, generates, I don't know, trillabytes of data every second. But if you can manipulate them, you can, you can sort of find out why basmati rice from this part of Pakistan tastes more aromatic there than anywhere and find, get your plants to express it in your home. <laughs> you know? Well, taking that one step further to a completely different place, I had a conversation years ago with a chef about bread making and why this bread was so much better than the other bread. And, you know, we focus on the flour. You know, I know Mitchell has a small grinding machine at home, and he likes to grind and mill his own flour from, you know, fresh wheat berries and things. We talk about the flour. We talk about the water. We talk about the levain, the starter, and the yeast, and the baking, and all those kinds of things. The chef was talking to me about the actual microbes in the air of the space inside the boulangerie. And he was yeah. specifically talking about a boulangerie in Paris that was, you know, 100 years old where they'd been making the same bread Probably in that space. Probably with wooden butt bins that had microbes in them. So then the microbes and the yeast and the levain all in that air. So while you measure out your flour and your water and all those kinds of things, if something is sitting and living in that environment, it's taking in definitely things from that yeah. environment. So this type of environmental science that you're talking about in a lab to grow an amazing hazelnut is also something where you could then, I guess, figure out why 
you know, the baguette from this 150-year-old boulangerie in Paris is... He's done it. Uh, he, it's funny. He has these fermentation amazing. bots, and he, he made one for David Chang, and he made one for Rene Redzepi. And what you can do, because the environments are so controlled, you can write a recipe, a script for a fermentation and get the same results in two different countries, two different total environments. Exactly that. Mm. So the kimchi doesn't have that je ne sais quoi, right, <laughs> or however right, you say that in Korean. Right. I don't know. Right. The, the yeah. Bushwick terroir. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting to me as we're talking about this, it's funny because, you know, we were saying I was saying earlier that and you were saying that it's sort of um, the simplicity of technology. Technology is sort of receding a little bit. So it's not about the technology itself. It's about bringing us back in some way to the real world. Using the technology to map the thing that you want to to take it out of the technology itself. But in, in this instance, you know, the the sort of explosion of possibilities and realization of the role of microbes in our health, in our food, in our flavors, in the soil, all this sort of stuff, even though that is an, you know, uh, a trillion-year-old um, uh, real-world analog thing, the microbial activity of the Earth, we can only know about it because of the power of computing we have now, the technology we have to see it and read it and calculate it and do stuff. Like, you could never do that without a supercomputer in your pocket, you know? And so it's a funny, it's a funny um, analog consequence of technology. Well, technology is always typically driving us to a real life experience, which is, you know, to the blue apron, to the to the app that takes you to find the baguette, to all those different things. But this leads us to, I think, another trend that I would I would put on the table for consideration for 2018. We're already seeing plant based alternatives to thing, be, things becoming popular. The burger category is certainly one um, you know, sort of the next evolution of, of the vegan and the veggie burger. Yeah. But with all, when you combine, you know, the ability to map what exactly it is about a food that you like, then that gives you the opportunity to try and recreate that. And it seems like there's plant alternatives to just about everything. Yeah, well, because on right. deck to be coming out because you know, they've sort of, as soon. you say, they've un, they've decoded the chemical structures of things that lead to their principal qualities so you can make meat out of legumes canadian lentils or whatever yeah it's fascinating someone's doing seafood too i noticed it's a little gary's the next big one is it milk and yogurt because it all goes back to i mean one of the interesting things about companies like impossible foods which is a company that is creating um you know plant alternatives to you know meat and proteins and we've had them on this show before, the, the impetus to the company is not to create different food versions. The thrust of the company is to make an environmental impact yeah. for the long term. And so, so to get rid of animals from the system. Exactly, because of the environmental impact it takes to raise a cow, that if you can reduce that to plants, it's a better environmental thing. So how do you change what people eat? Are you actually, it's, it's many instances easier to give them a different version of the thing they already love and versus I know getting them to eat something completely different. I know that that's a noble environmental goal, and I'm not sure it's a noble gastronomic goal. No. Even though it's impressive to me, I don't know why I, I need to eat a hamburger that comes from a plant. I'd maybe rather not eat a hamburger. And... And, and I'll take it one step further. And I just had this conversation with a vegan. Um, 
And I say that because vegans become a little bit of a religion, uh, you know, for all the reasons that people believe things very strongly. Well, but and gastronomy also becomes a little yes, bit of a reli sure. religion. There are people who are chasing those that, that world's 50 best list, like, <laughs> you know, devoted acolytes. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> uh, but I don't, I don't imagine the right end point of our world is a world without animals in it. I mean, I think we have too many. I think we don't care for them enough. But I don't believe that agriculture should be animal free. Because it hasn't been since the dawn of time? Right. Because symbiosis is not, we're animals. Like what, like I think that it's, it's, it's wrong to assume that that's the right vision, even though we've screwed up the animal thing, uh, you know, really badly. And the environmental impact of that is bad. But I think there's an ox on a farm for a reason. And, you know, when it's time is done, we eat it and that it goes in the soil. And I think that's... Circle of life. Yeah, I don't know. Circle of life. Circle of life. It's the anti-technology. <laughs> yes. Well, one of the interesting things that I learned this year on this show, I have Nathan Mirvold on as a guest at the publication of his latest five-volume tome called Modernist Bread. And... While he was in the process of researching and writing the book, they discovered, there was a discovery that was made, not by him, but he was following the discovery. Archaeologists found in caves in Mozambique, where early humans were living, they found grinding stones and mm. grinding bowls that had traces of flour in them. So when you have grinding stones to make flour, inevitably you have some sort of bread type product. Mm. It was wild sorghum was the grain that was being ground. And at the time when they were researching the book, they had put the first arrival of bread something about 12,000 years back. Uh-huh. The grinding, stone, the grinding stone discovery in the Mozambique caves dated to 100,000 years ago, mm. which is fascinating because, you know, the history of bread is interesting in that it's very much the history of, of human evolution because of the technology and the grinding right. and the agriculture. And I was going to say agriculture requires not, not nomadic and tribes. And right. cooking with fire and all those kinds of things. But the th I was delighted by it because... I guess bread is paleo. <laughs> right. <laughs> and as we discover new things and people make suppositions about, you know, to your point of we are animals and we do this and we do that and sort of it's the natural state of things. And I'm very much in agreement with that. But uh, you look at something like paleo where we don't eat bread because that's not what we did oh, yeah. when we were at the dawn of time. And guess what? Looks like we did. I guess we, we might did. Have. Right. <laughs> we knew something. Yeah, I love I, I love those discoveries. They feel a hundred thousand years ago. Smug. There was that one years ago where they discovered that the brain capacity of humans took a leap forward when we discovered cooking, and it was right around the raw food movement. And I thought, see, <laughs> cook. I'm like, this feels very smug. Archaeology in the service of uh, gastronomy. So plant-based alternatives. And then from the plant-based alternatives, uh, some of the other trends that I, you, know, you see starting are the um, nutrition biohacking things for nutrition, what's the body nutrition, what's the nutritional value of food that now we've, you know, and you probably saw a lot of this around yeah. Expo and the international community in terms of feeding people is not just a volume of food, but also what's the actual 
nutritional sure and value uh, to the to the human organism i think there that's an important point um but also uh, I think about it in light of Jose Andreas and the amazing work he's been doing for humanitarian aid in Puerto Rico and in Haiti. And one of the things he said on on that amazing 60 Minutes segment was that you, for years, development and humanitarian aid has been about the nutrition. But by cooking for these people, they are serving them hope, like the actual cooking of a hot meal. It's intellectual and emotional yeah. nutrition also. Right. So you can't, sometimes we separate them too much. I, I, I I'll be curious to see the impact when we really understand and when each of us can utilize the genetic knowledge we have and how that may or may not affect what we should eat. Or It worries me because I think, like all things, we um, are precision. We're not always good with precision, and sometimes we overcompensate. And, and, uh, but I, when I know, when I can use the information of my own genes and, and make some determination about what I should eat, and we are in that moment, it just hasn't, it hasn't become that common. Um, I wonder what that's going to do for gastronomy or for, for I, I don't know. It it's, creeps me out a little bit. Is that like being on the blood type diet? Yeah, I think it is, <laughs> except it will have maybe more science. <laughs> what could be more scientific than your blood type? It's true. What could be? Well, I don't know why you know, we continue to f- try have to find these things for food when I don't... I mean, I think of Marion Nessel, and you know, she's she's controversial in her conservatism in some ways when it comes to nutrition, but but we seem to know what is good for us and what makes us live fulfilling lives, so why do we keep looking for something else? I don't... Well, we also have the barriers of the people and the companies who are making the things that are bad for us, yes. who don't who want need, to recognize the good things. And need to sell them for all sorts of reasons. And right. I think if we look at, I think just maybe this week there was an article I read about um, nutrition health issues in Mexico. And, you know, very similar to the articles that were out recently about you know, health and nutrition and, you know, the health of the po- and health and weight of the populations in Brazil, yeah. you know, it's basically, you know, American processed foods and fast foods, you know, take over the world and then, you know, they make their profit. But in their wake, they leave people who yeah. are under, you know, who are malnourished in a nutritional sense, who are, you know, gaining weight and have all the health issues of, you know, being heavy and poor health and all that right. kind of stuff. And it's just sort of like rippling and the, and the two the world. and the question is is complicated because you said it they make their profits and partly that's the problem mm. like you know if you just ate oreos once in a while and they didn't have to sell more oreos to satisfy all the shareholders and things that maybe it would be fine to have oreos around and it was once like there was something that was well fine. at incept an oreo was not a bad thing right Right. You know, the first Twinkie that was ever made was made in a bakery. And it was <laughs> actually a yellow cake <laughs> with an actual cream frosting. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It was probably you know, like the most delicious, you know, ladyfinger cream sandwich thing you'd ever have. But at, over time, with all of the advancements of right. technology and preservation and all that kind of stuff, they evolve and they turn into something different from what they were. I don't, I, it's uh, I, there too that pr- it's the profit motive, the sort of exploitation of, of things to make more money. So they live longer on the shelves, they're cheaper to produce, all that sort of stuff that frustrates me because, 
you know, you, you can make things that last a long time with real ingredients. Like you can, jam like and jam. preserves. Yes. You're, you're and an avid canner, pickler, yep. jammer. And I don't know why. I, I don't know. It's, it's Confit lasts forever, <laughs> I feel like, also. Yes. You know? Lucky us. Kimchi, 100-year-old yeah. eggs, jerky. There's a lot of stuff out there that you can make naturally that will last a very, yeah. very long time. So... We've covered augmented reality, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, biohacking, plant-based alternatives, blockchain for the food supply. I have one that's growing a little bit, if I may. Yes. I throw it out there. Precision agriculture, which is something that was very front of mind when we were doing the expo exhibits two or three years ago. Uh, and that I see more and more this idea that because of all of this monitors and sensors so and the data, digital agriculture yeah you can you can you can look at a field or you can monitor a field and know which plants need water, which plants need nitrogen, which plants need whatever and it's digital a, agronomy there you go that's a good phrase so that that I, I we did a show on that oh did you yeah oh, there's awesome. a there's a little tech startup company started by a woman called Agrilist, and it's digital agronomy yeah there for you indoor go. farming. Indoor. Well, so they're doing it outdoor using satellite images that take sensors of water and heat and very specific. And, and it, was, it was just starting when we were doing Expo, and I just see things all the time now of farms. I, I mean, what, what it makes you wonder is what happens to the farmers, what happens to the communities, like all these sorts of things. The, the robot um, Armageddon is coming, you know, despite what Trump and his folks might think. And the jobs uh, are going to be complicated to produce but then is it just a shift? Is it sort of this evolutionary period where, you know, while I'll use Amazon and, and shopping and retail as the example where, yes, you have the retail stores that are closing, but then you have all of these shipping centers that spring up and then you need people to deliver the products yeah. and drive the so it's, it's a transition. It's that, a transition from one yeah. thing from one thing to from one profession to the next is the as the process evolves. But I think those, if you're stuck in that transition, as many places in the country are, and we've seen what happens politically when that happens, I think it's painful. I mean, I think restaurants are about to undergo a painful transition. I don't really know I what it is. Restaurants but have been, are on the cusp of that for the past couple years. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of There's like creeping towards, yeah. and it's, I don't think we're in the eye of the storm yet. But there's a big shaking out moment coming. Yeah, so it's in a, so there'll be winners variety, and losers from a variety of fronts. Yeah, technology yeah, yeah. being one of them. Absolutely. <laughs> and or technology, and or even if it's not directly technology in restaurants, it's the application of technology to other food things that make them faster, cheaper, more right. creative, more customizable, all that sort of stuff that in a restaurant environment you can't necessarily deliver. One so of the speak. one of the interesting things about the restaurant tech space is most of the technology related to restaurants, whether that be um, point of sale software, reservation software, platforms, apps for delivery, apps to get a reservation, recommendations. Most restaurant tech is developed by people who are diners. Mm developed by people who are diners, who sit in the dining room, who have an experience, who want to make it better, who are sitting in their office. You know, Caviar was famously developed by a group of guys who worked together in San Francisco who were working late at night and wanted to have their favorite thing, but right. it didn't get delivered, so they figured out how to do that. So we have a lot of people who are interested in restaurants because of their experience as diners, but just given the nature of the restaurant business and the amount of time that it takes and the fact that most of the people who are involved in it are 
like interested in making the best pizza right. or the best cocktail or giving you a great experience, they don't have a lot of time to develop things. So we see very little restaurant tech being developed by people working in end. restaurants. Mm, that's interesting. I think because, you know, restaurants are sort of, I think, the original startup. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> you know, like, wh- I, have a, I have this crazy idea, and I'm going to get a space, and I'm going to pull together yeah, a bunch of backers, you know, my angel, my angel part. round. They forgot exactly. the other end, exactly. the IPO moment. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often unless exactly. you're Danny Meyer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's, it's interesting. So, I mean, restaurant technology, I don't know that we'll see that much more of it. Mm. Um, I think you'll see it as it comes to you know, financial transactions as it comes to, you know, nest and things like that. Mm. You can watch your business from someplace. You can control things, the experience and what people want, how people find you. But I don't know that there's actually that much tech that the average restaurant is going to be able to benefit right. from. Well, I, I can totally see that. And from the business side, it's hard. It's such a pans, a manual business, a manual skill, artisan but I will say, thinking about uh, apps or technology things I love now, one of my favorite new things is to be able to text my confirmation of a reservation. One for yes, two yes. for no. Not having to sit on hold or try to get through or wait for 10 a.m. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Have to wait for 10 a.m. and have it on speed dial? What a, yeah, yeah. Those were the days. <laughs> Well, we are, unfortunately, out of time oh for the last episode of 2017, and we're almost out of time for the year. We are almost out of time for the year for our fundraising efforts on at Heritage Radio Network, and there are a lot of amazing groups of people and organizations doing necessary, critical things in the world that I contribute money to, and I know a lot of you listeners contribute money to, but... Food, our food history and the arts and humanity, those are important things for us to have too. So while you're making your checklist of year-end donations, if maybe you send us you know, what you spent on coffee today or you know, how much your desk lunch was, that would help us make radio. And I have to say in this day and age, I give freely to every media outlet that we are so reliant in our current political situation on our media, food or otherwise, that we need them to survive for us to survive. Also in a global sense, mm-hmm. it's sort of the interconnectivity of information also mm-hmm. so so quickly um, that people connect around the world is, is become kind of critical also. So Mitchell, last thoughts, 2018. What do you, <laughs> what do you think, what do you hope is going to happen? What do you think the amazing breakthrough is going to be? Oh my goodness, I wasn't prepared for a final, uh, final com- statement. I hope that we will continue to see the value, uh, in the increasing value of eating food with people and coming together around the table, the opposite of technology, or we can use it to get there, make our plan, make the reservations, but... But as you and I know personally, as we know professionally, I think um, that that the table is a is a really powerful place. Um, as long as we're sitting there, the food ought to be good, ought to be better, and strive to make it better. But but I just think um, I just think the technology of cooking itself is really a human technology that I think um, we need to continue to put more value on. That's a great sentiment. Um, And 
I, I'm going to say that for 2018, I think we are going to see more convenience and more of these apps that do amazing things for us that make our lives easier. And they're great to embrace. And a lot of times they save money for businesses and restaurants. But I also encourage people just because it's easy and just because it's on your phone doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. I encourage people to take a look at the businesses who are creating these conveniences in the same way they look at farms and restaurants and other businesses to make sure that when they take your money, the restaurant gets your money or the farmer gets some of the money or you know it goes properly back into your community. What a lot of people don't realize is some of these things that we find that are so amazingly convenient are actually having a negative impact on our communities yeah. and on our businesses. You know, Seamless is a great example. You order on Seamless because it's really easy and you're ordering from your restaurant down the street and you think that's a great, you know, a great economic move for your community, but you're actually taking the profits from that transaction out of the hands of the restaurant and putting it into the corporate coffers of something like Seamless. Whereas if you called the restaurant yourself, you could still get that delivery and then you would fuel your local economy and business. Very so important point. convenience is very seductive. We're very good at reading labels and, and following you know, stories back to the end. So I encourage everyone to do that as they download the next newest, most convenient thing. Make sure that when you support your local businesses and your local restaurants and your farmers and all you know, our writers and our community and the artisans, make sure that you are supporting them and that you're not supporting some you know, corporate company in Delaware, because that's where most businesses incorporate. <laughs> they just got rid of net neutrality. Oh. Well, and on that note, 2018 will be the year of paying more. Paying no, money. no, 2018 will be the year of the lawsuits. Yes, right. Because apparently there are several organizations that were poised and ready for this, and that the next step is they're going to take someone to court. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, we, that's not a happy note to end on. But Well, that's okay. You don't have to go online to get Tech bites. You can circumvent the net and go directly to your app on your phone, iTunes and Stitcher Radio. You can find all of this year's episodes as long as every episode starting from number one back in 2015. Get it on the go, subscribe, like it, leave us a four-star review. That would be a great holiday gift for us here at Tech bites. I want to thank David Tadashore, who is our engineer, who we didn't get to hear from today, also the Heritage Radio Network Studio Manager, for being my unindicted co-conspirator for this year of Tech Bytes. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I want to thank Mitchell Davis for coming out and spending the morning with us talking about the state of the world and food tech. You are welcome. And all the other guests. I want to thank Uptown Nico, who is the amazing DJ who made that great song that opens and closes the show. It's called Nomad, a CPU track. And if you like him, you can find him on SoundCloud. You can find him on Instagram. And you can find him live in real life because he plays out quite a bit in New York City. I want to thank all of our listeners, all of our sponsors, all of our underwriters, and um, Heritage Radio Network for making the world a, a better place, saving our food history, telling our food stories. Um, I think that's it. Did I leave anything out? <laughs> no. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for, for <laughs> bringing it all to everybody. I'll thank you as the guest. Yay. Because it is so good. <laughs> yeah.
And thank you, studio audience. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. We forgot them. Really what lovely. A, great, great crowd. Audience. Thank you. Thank you. The Bushwick crowds are always so good. That's it for Tech Bites For 2017, we are going to take a little holiday hiatus. We will be back on January 18th, 2018 at our regular time, Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. The next four weeks will be a great time for you to catch up on other episodes. I'm Jennifer Leitze, and this is Tech Bites. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.